Good morning. Welcome to Big Valley Grace Community Church. Welcome to those who are in the venue, in the cafe, as well as online. What a great day. And thanks, Scott, for leading us in that song. Boy, it's right out of the book of Job. Man, it's good to know the Lord is the great I am, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Well, Pastor Rick is in Jerusalem today. Uh, he and a group of people from Big Valley have uh, gone over to Israel during Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and a really unique time. There's many people that travel this time of year just to be in Israel during this season, this time, and they happen to be a part of it. I don't know what all they're seeing today, but I know they're in Jerusalem and around, and they'll be home uh, next week, and we'll look forward to seeing Pastor Rick. Hey, last week, uh, we had an incredible time. You may not be aware of it, but uh, last Sunday was our launch of our series campus. And Pastor Joel Boone and Matt Ippolito are campus pastors, and they have a message for us. Yeah, you got to see what happened this last week. Hello, Big Valley Grace, Modesto Campus. Joel Boone here. I'm one of the campus pastors for the brand new series campus that launched just this past Sunday after months and months and months of praying together and partnering together and the people of Big Valley Grace inviting their friends and their family to come be a part of this new campus on the very first official Sunday. There was over 325 people that came to Big Valley Grace. Grace series. Of those 325, I want to break that down a little bit for you. The over 100 people were volunteering, serving, using their gifts the way that God has made them to bring glory to God and to serve others. There was 70 of those 325 were kids, ages birth through 12th grade. Uh, of those 325, it reached all of South County, Ceres, and Houston, and Keys, and Denaire, and Turlock, South Modesto. But maybe most exciting of all, of those 325, there was 20 people who made profession of faith. We wanna cheer with you and we wanna celebrate with heaven that you received God's forgiveness today, okay? So this is it, all right, here we go. One, two, three, stand up if you receive, hey, praise God, praise God, woo, yeah! Awesome, praise God, awesome, very cool. So thank you. Thank you for praying. Thank you for partnering together as we've now launched, as a church family, Big Valley Grace Series. Isn't that awesome? They just uh, finished their second, uh, their second meeting uh, just a, a moment ago. I haven't heard any report about it. But we're going to thank the Lord for what he is doing. Uh, I don't know if many of you realize, but uh, where the city, Ceres Community Center is at used to be a church there. Uh, a major church in the city of Ceres. They sold the property to the community and then have relocated. But isn't it interesting what the Lord does? And there were many folks of Big Valley, that uh, a number of folks that I met that have prayed to receive Christ here in that church. Uh, one individual, John Saunders, was our licensed and ordained in that church. And the Lord says, by golly, we're still going to preach the word here in this community center. And uh, 20 people gave their life to the Lord. And isn't that a great thing? The Lord is continuing to use this place. Uh, as it had been years ago, as a place where people could hear about Jesus. We're not the only thing that's in town. There are many other churches. We're joining them. Uh, we believe God is, uh, we're just one more opportunity for people to hear about Jesus. And it makes it convenient for folks that are in that area to be able to come to a location like that. They nearly filled the place up. And they're wondering, well, we'll see over the next few weeks, but do we need to go to two services here fairly soon? So isn't, isn't the Lord good? We rejoice in him. It's not us. It's not Joel. It's, it's the Lord at work. Let's pray and let's just thank the Lord. Father, thank you so much. And I do know as I 
been a part of that planning and its launching. And Father, this is all of you. This is led by your Holy Spirit. This is what you have deemed to be good for this community. And I'm grateful for Pastor Joel and Pastor Matt who have been serving today and the 100 plus people that have responded to your leading and your call who are t telling kids about Jesus, who are serving, holding babies, that are ushering and greeting and loving people. And many, many people are hearing about Jesus and some in direct answer to prayer, friends who were praying for their neighbors and friends that they invited who came and who said, Lord, I want to follow you. So, Lord, we give you the praise. Really, Lord, we know that there, if there's any fruit that is ever to be born, that lasts for eternity, it comes from you. We're the vine. Uh, you're the vine. We're the branches. Apart from you, we could do nothing. We want to abide in you. Let your word abide deeply in us and watch you work. And I, so I thank you for what you've done. Even today, though we haven't heard the stories, we know, Lord, you were at work today, as you are here. And we give you praise and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're visiting Big Valley for the first time, um, my wife and I would love to meet with you after the service. There will be a group meeting here, but Nancy and I will be over in the Welcome Center. We'd love to become acquainted with you. If some of you have come for a need of prayer today, the altar room will be open. We'd love to pray with you. There's men and women that are there to, to pray with you. But we've been in a great journey on the book of Job. This is week seven. We have three more messages in the book of Job, but it has just been a powerful, powerful time in the Word. And I... It's, I've been privileged to be able to study it and to share some things. And each time I look at it, there seems to be always some, something new that I see. And one of them is if you had asked me just a few weeks ago, uh, what is the main theme in the book of Job? I would have told you before we began back in August, before we began. I said, well, the book of Job, the main theme in the book of Job is about suffering and God's sovereignty. Um, and, and certainly that is one of the themes that you see in the book of Job. It is, is God's sovereign work through an individual like Job who is blameless because not all suffering comes as a result of our sin, but sin is the result of suffering. I mean, sin does produce suffering, but in Job's case, he was a blameless man and he's experiencing some incredible difficulties, uh, the loss of his children and many other things. And we see God's sovereign hand in it all and ultimately as it ends here in chapter 42, but th there's a bigger theme which is what we're talking about today. The bigger theme is that this is a book of wisdom. Because as you look at all the conversations that begin, starting in chapter 4 on through chapter 37, the, the conversation is, is, does God know what he's doing? Uh, in the affliction that I have, is he just? Is he righteous? Is he good? Is my suffering... Uh, can't think of the word. Is it just coincidental? Is it happenstance? Is it contrived? Does it have any significance or meaning at all? And what in the world is God doing? I've had many folks said, I've heard asked that question. And in Job 38, verse 2, which we won't go there as a group in terms of studying it, that's a couple weeks away. But in 38, 2, God says, right when he begins to speak out of, the, out of the storm, he says to Job, who is this that darkens my counsel? Who dares to come with me with ignorant words. That's Job 38 too. Isn't that something? The God who speaks who is this that's coming here that's questioning my wisdom? Last Saturday night, we had a, what was called a date night, and we had three families who experienced different trials, and they were sharing about God's work through those trials, and one of them was Danny and Jody Richardson, who had a little boy named Cody, who at three years old was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he lived beyond his expectation, but at 12, the Lord took him home. And they shared about that journey. And Danny shared something that I'll never forget. It was very significant. He said, 
to me and said to us, when we, when we tend to pray, we pray to the extent of our hand. That's as far as that we can see. But we pray to a God whose hand stretches all throughout eternity. And so there are things that we're experiencing that we don't understand, but the answers are beyond us. And one of these days, we're going to find out. And we're going to experience what, if you're a Greek scholar, it's the great Aso. And what that means is that when we see the Lord face to face and he reveals what all of this means, we say, ah, so that's what that was about. <laughs> because he is doing something that while we may not be able to see, and while Job, and we'll read this in just a moment, Job, Job there's no doubt in his mind that God is powerful. There's no doubt in his mind that he's almighty, that he's all-knowing. You'll see that as you read all the conversations from chapter 4 to chapter 38, all the men, Eliphaz, Zophar, Bonad, or Bildad, know that God is almighty. He knows he's ever-present. He knows that he's just. He knows that he's righteous. But what they don't know, and what Job isn't convinced of, is God good. Does he really know what he's doing? How is this fair? Why is he afflicting me when I have done all of these things that have been good for him? Why am I experiencing this trouble. It really is a book about wisdom and wondering, God, are you really truly wise? Are you out of control? Are you in control? And if you are in control, why is this happening? And if you are all powerful, why are you letting it happen? That's the issue. And so the greater theme throughout the book of Job is the issue of wisdom. When Nancy and I were back east, I heard this story. And as you move toward the east coast, boating is a big deal. We were not too far from the Chesapeake Bay and just a little south of where Boston Harbor is at, and sailing's a big deal in that area uh, on the Atlantic. And so I think the story could potentially be true, though, it, though it's just a great story. And one of the, the story goes like this. There was a very wealthy man who had on his bucket list a desire to sail around uh, the world in a boat that he himself had made. He had been a sailor, and it was his desire, I want to build a boat, and I'm going to furnish it with the best thing that I could possibly furnish it, and I'm going to sail around the world and have this great adventure. And so off, off he went. He worked and worked and worked. And he did just exactly what he had planned. He took, he, with, with no expense spared, he got the best teak and, and made a beautiful deck in the cabin, it was, so, it was just wonderfully furnished, probably better than many of our homes. He went down, he wanted to be comfortable if he was going to sail. And he had in it all the, the best instrumentation that money could buy. He had the best resources. He had the great survival kits. It was well stocked. He was well prepared. And the ship was absolutely beautiful. It took him a long time to build the boat. But once he had finished it, with great fanfare, he sailed out toward the east on his great voyage. And everyone noticed it. They knew that this time had arrived. And there was boats and people cheering as, as he said goodbye to his family and off that he went. But in a few weeks, the boat was, covered, was discovered capsized. He was missing, lost at sea. A storm had come, and through different circumstances, the boat uh, went over. And as he inspected the boat... And while it had some beautiful things on the outside, what was missing is that he had not given very good attention to the keel. If any of you know sailing, you got to have a good, deep, strong keel. 
So when the winds come and the storms come and it blows those sails, that boat can still stay erect. It may lean a little bit, but the keel will put it right back upright. In this instance, the keel had snapped off. It had been poorly designed. Not much attention had been given to the things that were underneath the water. Great attention to the things above the water. But where it really counted what was under the water. And when I look at this chapter in chapter 28, which we're going to read here in just a moment... It's all about what's under the water. It's all about what your house is built upon. It's all about what is the keel of your ship. And are you prepared for whatever the storms in life come? Because the one who hears these words and hears God's words, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, the one who hears and obeys and puts them into practice and takes them seriously is likened to a man who builds a ship with a strong keel. <laughs> Or likened to a man who builds his house upon the rock. And when the storms come, and they will, they will come. There'll be a, a doctor's report that will come. There'll be a pink slip in your box that will come. There'll be a death in your family that's unexpected will come. It comes in lots of different ways, but the storms will come. None of us will be absent through this life without a storm. And it will come. And when it comes, that's not the time that you start thinking about your foundation and how it needs to be built. And Jesus said, the man who hears my words, hears the same messages, same sermons, and says, no, nah, you know what, that's, that's nice, but that's really not for me. Doesn't take Jesus' words seriously or the things that we're going to read here today. It's likened to a man, the Bible says, is a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand who doesn't pay attention to the keel, and when the storms come, and they will, just like the other gentleman, that house will not stand, that ship will not stay up. And as we go through this book of Job, and we're going to look at 28.13 in just a moment, and 28.13, because Job talks about things that we consider to be really, really valuable, how they're procured, how if you want gold, you can find it. How if you really want silver and diamonds and all the other things, you can find it. There's places where you can go, you can get it. And if you don't have it, you can save up enough money and you can buy it. But where do you go to get wisdom? Where do you go to get understanding? And we're going to see in the book of Job, as Job wrestles with this, is that it cannot be bought. It's not found in books. It's not better found in UCLA or Berkeley. Or any other expensive college. It doesn't come with a degree. And tragically, you can have all of those things. You can have wealth. You can have all the comforts of life. And you can be one of the most educated people that has great knowledge of physics and things that most of us don't know. And you can be a fool. Amen. And the Bible tells us again, in all the things that you get, get wisdom. Don't miss that. Get it. Whatever it takes, and get it. And we're going to talk about where wisdom is found and how one can get it. So we're going to be looking at Job chapter 28. And, and if, your Bible, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to there. We're going to be looking at a few verse, chapters here to set this up. I'm going to actually read 28 here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, boy, see me after church. I go to the altar after the service is done. We want to give you a Bible. And let's get used to using and opening up and taking notes in it. So here we are in chapter 28. <clears throat> We're at the end of these conversations. So Job, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, 
trouble comes to Job. He doesn't understand why. In Job chapter 3, he has what we call Job's lament. And chapter 4 through chapter 37 is the explanation from his friends as to why he is suffering so. There are three rounds of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, three friends who sat in the dirt with him for seven days, who in their endeavor to bring encouragement show no compassion at all. And as we go through the three rounds, this is the third, as we go through the three, it keeps getting ramped up a little bit. The conversation becomes a little bit more intense, becomes a little more pointed, a little more direct. They're not beating around the bush anymore. And so Eliphaz, who is the oldest, is setting this ultimately up, what we see in Job 28. But it really starts, this this series starts in 22. I'm just going to reference a few things. And one of them is that Eliphaz now holds nothing back, and he tells Job exactly what it is that he has on his mind, what, what he thinks is really the cause of Job's difficulties. As many of us, maybe maybe some of us, when you look at those who are very wealthy and have much uh, resources available to them, it's often not uncommon for us to speculate that maybe they got it in unethical ways. That's Eliphaz. Any of you ever been falsely accused? Have any of you ever experienced where somebody has said this is, they questioned your motives and they said that this might have been your motives, right? You said, no, 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 no. Anyone experienced that? That's what we're going to see here in chapter 22. Eliphaz speaks. Look at chapter 22, start in verse 6, and you're going to hear what is Eliphaz's heart. He says, you demanded Job's security from your brothers for no reason. That means that he Uh, was going to lend them some money, but he says, I demand security for your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. Uh, You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it. He's saying to Job, you had all of these resources, and when you saw people that were in need, you walked away from it. Or you demanded things that you didn't need a man's clothes. You didn't need to leave him naked. You didn't have to do that, but you did. You would not be wealthy had you not have done those things. Now, Eliphaz has no specific example. There's no witness that where he's seen this. He's just putting this in his imagination. He says, surely this must have happened. Look at verse 9. You sent widows away empty-handed. You broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you and why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. And if you drop down to 21, he says, Submit to God and be at peace with him, and this way prosperity will come to him, come to you. And so Eliphaz is just sticking it to him, and he's saying, Job, you are guilty. You have been unwilling to admit. You have taken things from people. You didn't need it. You had plenty you could have shared and you didn't. And it's for these sins that God is bringing judgment to you. Job's defense is in chapter 23. If you look at chapter 23, starting in verse 10, Job says to Eliphaz, "But but God knows, Eliphaz, the way that I take. And when God has tested me, it will come, it'll be obvious. It will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. He says, Eliphaz, that's not true. I haven't done any of those things. All of my life, I have been intent on following the Lord. I have treasured his commands. I have put them into practice. I have tried to live in such a way that honors him. 
And if you jump over to 29, which we won't need to turn there now, but if you look at chapter 29, Job delineates how he has conducted his life, and it is extraordinary. I'm amazed when I look at him, even compared to my own life. Uh, Job, I don't know where I'm at on a scale of 1 to 10, but Job is like a (laughs) 9.9. If there's anybody that could be close to a 10, it is Job. If any one of us even did half the things that he did, we would be pushing the mark pretty up there right next to Mother Teresa. (laughs) It's amazing when you look at Job 29 and what he says, and he is saying, that is not me, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. That is not me. I have treasured the Lord. Bildad then comes in in chapter 25. Bildad, he's running out of steam. This is the shortest chapter in the book of Job. He only has a few things to say, and he doesn't say much. He really doesn't know what to say. He states the obvious. In fact, when you look at 27 or chapter 26, Job is going to be very sarcastic to him. But here's what Bildad says. Dominion and awe belong to God. And Job is going to say, duh, right? He establishes order in the heights of the heaven. Yeah, tell me something new. Can his forces be numbered? No. Upon whom does his light not rest? How then can man be righteous before God? Which is a statement that comes from chapter 4. How can one be one born of woman be pure? Job has never said that he is any of those things. Even if the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot before God, a son of man who is only a worm. And what he is saying is true. If you and I were to stand before God, he says, we're, we're smaller than grasshoppers. Who are you? Who are we, Lord, that you would even consider us? In all of your majesty and all of your glory, why would you give any thought to us is what the psalmist says. So those were Bildad's last words, and Job then shares his determination. In Ashley chapter 26 through 31, Job gives his final defense, but it shares his determination, and this will be Job's last words. He will not speak anymore after this session. But look at 27, if you have your Bibles, um, and just look at starting at verse 2. Job says, he's responding to Bildad, and he's responding to Eliphaz. I don't know where Zophar is, but he's not in the conversation anymore. And he says, guys, as surely as God lives, who's denied me justice. Look what he says. And this is interesting. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice. God has not been fair to me. He's not been just to me. The Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. So I know who God is. I know he's almighty. I know that this affliction has come from his hands. But look what he says in verse 3. As long as I live within me. As long as God gives me breath in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness and my tongue will never utter no deceit. There's no way, even though I have been afflicted by God, even though I feel that God has been unjust, even though I'm questioning maybe his wisdom, I will not let him go. I will not, no, no, no cursing word will come out of my mouth I will never put God down. My trust is in him. He is my redeemer. As Pastor Rick said last week, I look forward to seeing his face. I know my torment comes from him, but I will not let him go. And he says in verse 5, I will never admit you guys are right until I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will, not, I will maintain my righteousness and never let it go. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Job is saying, guys, as long as I live and I have breath. 
I am not the man that you have said that I am. I am not going to let go of that. I am not going to compromise it. I know how I have lived, how I have conducted my life. And I know as I'm examined, I'm going to be tested by God, and I'll come out as gold, and he is my redeemer. I look forward to seeing him in my face, but I am not the wicked man that you say that I am. That my, what I am experiencing is not connected to my failure as a man, is what he is saying. And as you look at Job 1 and 2, that's true. God says this man is blameless. Few of us are of this character quality. God is doing something else. And we're going to see that as we move into next week when we hear Elihu's uh, uh, conversation in six chapters. And then we get into the final chapters. We're going to see where God responds to Job. And he says, who is this that's questioning my wisdom? Let me ask you a few questions. And uh, it's, a, it's a great thing as you go along. So let's look at chapter 28. Uh, and in this segment here, it's almost like you're reading Proverbs. And Job ultimately is asking, where in the world does wisdom come from? And he's going to tell us. But he's going to use an analogy how there are many things that we can easily, it takes work, but we can find it. It takes some effort. We can find it. But where does one go to find wisdom? Look at chapter 20, starting in verse 1. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, in verse 2, and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness, and he searches for the farthest recesses, for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft and places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from the men, he dangles and he sways. And when I look at that passage, I think of the mines, the gold mines up in, up in the hills in California up by Sonora where I have been. And, and what it must have been 4,500 years ago for men to dig into the ground with the tools and equipment that they had that they didn't have 100 years ago. Hand tools, digging for the gold, digging for the silver, digging for the, the sapphires and the rubies. Verse 5, it says, The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. So even here, Job knows that the, the core of the earth is molten. Sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird, in verse 7, no bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eyes can see it because it's down in the earth. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there because it's down deep in the earth. Man's hands assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. He sees all of its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers, which we know were teeming with gold back in the 1800s in this area. He searches the sources of the rivers and he brings hidden things to light. And then he says in 12 and 13, and highlight this in your Bible and go back to it later, where can wisdom be found? I know where gold can be found. I know where sapphire and rubies can be found, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. And so the deep, the deep parts of the earth says, it's not in me. Gold's here. Sapphire's here. Wisdom's not. The sea says, it's not with it, and it's not with me. It, wisdom can't be bought with the finest gold, in verse 15, nor can its price be weighed in silver. 16 says it cannot, wisdom cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, which is in Saudi Arabia, or there's even a possibility he's referring to India. With precious onyx or sapphires, neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can wisdom be had, purchased for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper, in verse 18, are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. 
The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought. Wisdom cannot be bought with pure gold. So where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Here's the answer. Look at 21. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. It's concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. And look at this. And he alone knows where it dwells. For God views the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. And when God established the force of the wind and he measured out the waters and when he made a decree for the rain and a path for a thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and he appraised it. He confirmed it and he tested it. And this is what God said to man. The fear of the Lord. That's where you find wisdom. And to shun evil. That's how you get understanding. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the power of the reading of your word. I love the truth that's in here. Lord, I'm grateful. I am grateful, Lord, that it doesn't require a chest of jewels, a train car full of rubies and diamonds in order to purchase wisdom. In fact, what is amazing to me, you would say, if any of us would lack wisdom, we just need to ask. Because you're the giver of wisdom. You're the giver of understanding. And you make yourselves available if we seek you with all of our heart. And then you said, Lord, and then when you do that, you'll be found by me. Lord, that's an incredible promise. That you stand ready to unfold yourself to any who seek you with a whole heart. Thank you so much, Lord, for your good work and what you're doing. Help us as we part this out now, as we look through this, to grab it. So that, Lord, when we leave here, we have a better comprehension of its worth. And so, Lord, we give you the praise and wait upon you here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's a little sheet in your paper. I encourage you to kind of follow along. And again, the value of this little paper is, uh, is, is what you do with it afterwards. It's the verses to look up. We don't have time to, for you to turn to all these passages. I'll reference many of them. But, but you do your own study. You highlight these things. Here's my burden. Is when my children look at me, do they see a dad who comprehends the worth of wisdom? Do they see a mom who comprehends the worth of wisdom, the value of wisdom? When my friends look at me, do they see a man who comprehends the value? And by how I live, does it demonstrate to others that it's, it's right up there at the top of my list? Because when we talk about wisdom, we're not talking about what college should I go to? Lord, help me to understand, should I go to this college or this college? What person should I marry? Should I marry this one or this one? Should I go to this job or this job? Now, those are important decisions, and we do need to pray about them. We need to take them to the Lord. But when we are pursuing wisdom, when we are seeking wisdom, you know who we're seeking? <laughs> the giver of wisdom. <laughs> We're seeking him. We want him. We, 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 he, wants us to, he wants to be our treasure. Yeah, he wants us to be that which we embrace. And when we embrace him, he pours out not only his love upon us, but his nature and his character, uh, his ability for us to discern what's good and what's bad. And he walks with us. He leads us. That's what he's waiting for. For us to see that Wow, the God of the universe can be right here with me. If I seek him with all of my heart, 
he'll show up. He'll direct my steps. And that is worth more than any gold. It's worth more than any silver. It's worth more than any degree. Not some of, the, some of those things aren't important, but what a shame it is that you would have a PhD in bioscience and be a fool. You can have the knowledge of the world and be a fool. So let's talk about what is wisdom. What is wisdom? When we talk about this word, what it is that we mean? And this is my own personal definition. I've carried this for years. I don't know where I got it, but, but it just made sense to me. Wisdom is that ability to discern what is morally good and morally right. But it doesn't stop there. Wisdom is choosing to do what's right. Wisdom is choosing to do what's morally good. And that's where shunning evil comes in. Because a fool can discern what's good and what's not good. What makes the difference? They both can see what's good and what's not good. A fool says, I don't care. I want this. I don't care that it's along the road that's wide and many are walking down. In fact, I want to be with my friends. In fact, if I choose not to go there, I, I, I may lose my job. If I choose to go here and to stand with the Lord, I might end up standing alone. I, I, my friends might leave me. And, and, and it looks so good over here. And the enemy all the time provides for us things that look real, but they're not. It's a snare. It's a trap. And if any of you have had mice in your house, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Because you set a trap, and you lay something on that trap, and it looks good, smells good, and a few nibbles even taste good. <laughs> and you want it to look good. You want it to smell good. You want it to taste good. And you got your mouse. And if you are a fisherman, that's exactly what you do when you go to Bass Pro and you look through the fly section. And you say, ah, oh, that one. I, I know a fish is going to like that one. <laughs> Man, that looks just like a cricket. That just looks like a mayfly. And they're hatching today. I'm going to stick that on a line. And you go out there and you play out that line. And that fish sees it. And it looks good. It wiggles good. And you got yourself a fish. And that's how the enemy plays in our life. He takes things that look good takes things that feel good. And on the short term, man, they seem like they're the right thing, but there is a hook, there is a snare that many people wish they could get out of their life today. There's a trap that is waiting. And the Lord says, in all that you're getting of stuff that you get, get wisdom. Ask the Lord to give you that ability to discern what is morally good or what is morally right and ask him by the power of your Holy Spirit to choose what is good and trust him and watch him work. And it will say as you study Proverbs, which is a great exercise for your children to go through, is go through Proverbs and list what are all the benefits of being wise, what happens when you're a fool. And we'll go through this in a little bit. But there are some incredible benefits. Why would you not want to walk with the Lord? Why would you not want to walk with him? So what is wisdom? It's the discernment and understanding of what's morally right and then choosing to do that which is right. James says that there's two kinds of wisdom. So if you have your Bibles, turn toward the back and find James chapter 3. James says there's two kinds of wisdom. We need to be aware that there are two kinds of wisdom. There is a worldly wisdom that works. In Luke chapter 12, it describes a man where it worked really well for him. He was a great farmer. He knew what to plant. 
he reaped an incredible harvest. He built, he said, I, I, need to, I need to store this stuff. And if I can store it right, I can live off of this harvest for a long, long time. And the Lord visits him that night. And he says, you foolish man. You got the earth stuff down. You, you applied worldly wisdom and you got it down. But you're a fool. Because you are not ready for the next thing. Because right now, you're stepping into eternity. And sadly, you're not ready. You prepared, for, you prepared to live here, but you weren't prepared to live there. And you're a fool who's so short-sighted. And so there's two kinds of wisdom. James 3, 13 through 18. James says, who's wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, it's of the devil. So we need to be real careful. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It's peace-loving, it's considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So let's look at this. There's earthly and worldly wisdom. It's around us. And yet one of the characteristics of worldly wisdom is that the, James says is better jealousy. It's envy. If in, our, if in your heart what's motivating you and what's driving you is what you see others have that you want for yourself, that's not of the Holy Spirit. That is worldly wisdom. That is your flesh. That is what Paul talked about in, J in Romans chapter 3, that none of us are righteous, not a single one. All of us go our own way. All of us have turned aside from the truth of God, and we are pursuing our own way. And so if envy and jealousy is what driving you, <coughs> excuse me, that's not of the Holy Spirit. If selfish ambition is what's driving you, advancing your own agenda regardless of what happens, that is not of the Holy Spirit. Arrogant, prideful, boasting, that is not of the Holy Spirit. That is not where that comes from. And if you are puffed up, if you're proud of your achievements, and you look at yourself and you say, it is me who has made me, not God. I am the one who has advanced this. I am the one who made the right decisions. I am the one who made the right choices. <coughs> Excuse me. That is not from the Holy Spirit. In fact, James says it's demonic. These things don't come from God. It comes from the enemy of our soul. He loves to feed the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Those things are not from the Father. And anyone who does that, anyone who embraces that, is not doing the will of God. That's what John says. But there's wisdom from above. The characteristic of wisdom from above is that it's pure. It's holy. It's innocent. I like that. It's peaceable. It's conducive to healthy relationships. It doesn't step on people. It doesn't crush people. It builds healthy relationships. Wisdom from above is gentle. It's considerate. It's patient in dealing with others. It's also full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. 
It's consistently compassionate and kind. It is a characteristic of Holy Spirit-driven wisdom. When you walk with the Lord, you're going to be full of mercy and good fruits. When you walk with the Lord, you'll be impartial. You'll be unwavering. You'll be free of prejudice, not being judgmental if you're walking with the Lord and having his wisdom. And it's without hypocrisy. It will be sincere. It will be genuine and it will be without pretense. What you see on the outside is what it is on the inside. That's what the word sincere means. It means it's without wax. People in the old days would take marble and they would cover up the cracks with wax and a buyer would look at it and not be able to discern that the flawed statue has been covered up. Sincere means it's without wax. What you see on the outside is what it is all the way through. And pure wisdom, wisdom from on high, has that as its character. So where then can wisdom be found? We're back in Job 28. Where can wisdom be found? In Job 28, 21, it says, It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. It's concealed even from the birds of the air. So where is wisdom found? Well, Job 28, 21 says it's hidden. It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing. Man cannot find wisdom and understanding apart from God. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. His wisdom begins with God. He's the possessor and giver of all wisdom. So it's not found in books. It's not acquired with money or age. In fact, in Job chapter 32, if you just flip over just a few pages, Job 32, and look at verse 8, it says, it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty that gives him wisdom. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Folks, that's good news. <laughs> that is good news that wisdom isn't just for those of us who are old. You can have a three-year-old right up here. You can have a third grader up here who has memorized scripture, who has hidden God's word in his heart, who can be wiser than a 68-year-old PhD guy. Isn't that something? I used to do chapels for Big Valley Christian School years ago. One of my favorite chapels was Psalm 119. And I would read this passage in Psalm 119. It's around verse 104. And it says, Oh, how I love thy law. It's like, Commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. In fact, they even make me wiser than my teachers. And I would ask, How many of you would like to be smarter and wiser than your teacher? And all the hands would go up. <laughs> Except the teachers. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Boy, you hide God's word in your heart, it becomes a lamp into your feet and light into your path. It helps you to discern what is morally good and morally evil and helps you to choose the right way. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he directs our, step, our steps if we let him. And to me, it's amazing that a third grader can speak the truth of God powerfully. You don't have to wait till you're in your 60s before you can be considered having the wisdom of God. Secondly, wisdom is a gift from God. It's something that we can't buy. Look at 28, 23. It says, God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And this whole chapter is about, it's, I can tell you where to go get gold. I, I can tell you where to find some opals. I can tell you how to get sapphires and diamonds and rubies. In fact, uh, and if you, don't, if you want it, you can go down and you can buy it. But where do you go to find wisdom? It is from God. It is a gift from him. He's the giver of all wisdom. And he says in James, if any of us lack it, all we have to do is ask. And he gives it to us generously. And again, I'll say this again. It is much, much bigger than making a decision. 
It is the, the heart of this and what James is saying. If, if, if you want me, ask. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. I want to be a part of your life. I, I want you to come to that place where you realize you can't do it by yourself. And if you let me, I'll lead you. And where I lead you, it will be worth it all when you see me face to face. Trust me. And what Job and his friends could not see is they knew that God was all-powerful and they knew it was almighty. He knew that the afflictions was coming from the hand of God, but what he didn't know is that God is good, that God hadn't forgotten him, that God knew his name, that God was preparing a place for him and God wasn't done with him. Thirdly, how do we find wisdom? We find it when we fear the Lord. Look at 28, 28. He said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It starts there. If God is the giver of wisdom, there needs to be this reverential fear of him. And we'll talk about what that means here in just a moment. But it begins there. It starts there. Lastly, it also is found when we obey the Lord. Look at the last part of 28, 28. And fear of the Lord is wisdom. And to shun it, to shun evil is understanding. Those two things go together. Fearing the Lord will lead you away from evil. Fearing the Lord enables you to walk the path that God wants us to walk. It's a wise man, Jesus says, who hears my words and obeys him. Psalm 119 says, Your commands make me wiser than my enemies and have more understanding than my elders. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? These are important aspects, four things. Here's what it means. Number one is that we have a reverential awe of who God is and what he says. I love the passage in Isaiah 44, 24. It says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, and I made you. You're the sheep of my pasture. It is I who has made you, not yourself. I'm the shepherd of your life. I lead you into green pastures. I restore your soul. I anoint your head with oil. I walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. It is I who fills your cup to overflowing. Reverential awe is recognizing who the Lord is. Not that he's just all powerful and almighty, but he's near. He's my redeemer. He rescues me. He saves me. He's preparing a place for me. The second aspect of fearing the Lord is, is hating and shunning evil. That's just what we read here in verse 28. You can't have it both. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, is what Proverbs 8.13 says. You cannot follow the Lord and continue to embrace the things for which he died for. Amen. Ephesians 5 says we should be imitators of God like little children. We should walk in love in the same way that he has loved us. And there ought not to be any hint of immorality in our life. There ought not to be any coarse jesting in our life. He's called us to walk. And if we walk and we follow him, we're going to look like him. And that's what he's called us to do. To turn from evil, to walk towards him. And thirdly, to walk in humility. He stands against pride. It's the number one. And when you read Proverbs, there's seven things I hate. There's six things I hate. No, there's seven. The number one at the top of the list is a prideful heart. He stands against it. That arrogant heart that says, God, I don't need you. 
I can handle this myself. I can take care of this. Why, do I, why should I need you? He stands against that. And he is open to anyone who comes to him in humility and with open arms says, God, I need you. I want you. Rescue me. And he comes running. Lastly, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It affects our speech. We begin to have a speech that blesses because he hates perverse speech is what Proverbs 8.13 says. He hates perverse speech. He cringes when unwholesome words come out of our mouth. It's a reflection of a corrupt heart. And so Paul says in Ephesians, says, let no unwholesome word ever come out of our mouth, but only such a word is good for edification, that it may give grace to those who hear. That is what should characterize us. And so if I really fear the Lord, if I really want him, I'm going to turn my back on evil. I'm going to embrace him. And I'm going to let him transform my life from the inside out. And it's going to show up in my speech. It's going to show up in, my, in the things that I'm going to see the world as he sees it. I'm going to love people as he loves them. I'm going to want to do his work instead of my work. I'm going to put him first in my life. I'm going to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. I'm going to watch him work. So here's our problem. Is that you and I, and I put myself right in there too, we really don't comprehend that it's worth. We really don't comprehend the value of what it might mean to really walk wholeheartedly with him. There are so many things that capture our attention. There are so many things that drive us where we put the Lord on the shelf and say, Lord, we'll get to it a little bit later. I'll get to it after this is done. I'll get to it after things slow down. I'll get to it. And our children watch us as we make decisions, even how we conduct our lives about where does the things of the Lord take place in our life? Where, where is in the course of all things that we value? What's important in this home? And so they watch us when we make decisions that, you know, today, you know, we, we, we just, we, we got this game we got to go to. And we'll just have to let the things of the Lord wait. Got a bridal shower we need to go to. Got all sorts of things that take place and we'll get to it. We just, we just do not comprehend its worth. There are things that we consider to be more valuable and we pursue them and we consider them to be of greater treasure than it is to walk with the Lord to know him. Here's what Proverbs says. Here's some of the things that, that it says that if you value wisdom that you'll enjoy. And this is an exercise that I would encourage you who, who have children in your home, grandchildren, as they get older, to take them through Proverbs and have them study it and come back to you with a list as they read the word and to say, son, I want you to go through, find every word in Proverbs that talks about a fool and tell me what are some of the good things and bad things about being a fool? What does the Bible say? What are some of the good things, bad things about being wise? What does the Bible say? And watch their list. And here's a few of them that'll say, say that, profit, that wisdom is better than the profit of silver or gold. That is a good thing for your kids to know. That, well, if they're pursuing this big paycheck, there's something even more valuable than that. Amen. That wisdom is more precious than jewels. That long life is in the right hand. That riches and honor on the left. That the, wis the ways of wisdom are pleasant and there's no regret down that path. There's no hooks down that path. There's no habits down that path you won't be able to break. It's peaceful. The tree of life is there for those who take hold of wisdom. And when you take wisdom, you pursue it, you love your own soul when you get wisdom. And here's the last one. 
it makes your parents glad when you get wisdom. <laughs> your mom doesn't cry at night because you've chosen to be a fool. It makes your dad proud of you because you've chosen not to be a fool. Why wouldn't you go after wisdom? And Job says, we don't comprehend its worth. And here's the so what. This is what I like. This is good news. Because the God of the universe, and this comes right out of Job, the one who orchestrates the rain and the thunder, he says, come to me. Come to me. He extends an invitation. He says, come to me. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Hey, come to me. My door's open. My arms are open. I'll give you rest. Come to me. He invites us to trust him. He says, trust in me with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own wisdom and your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he, the God of the universe, will direct your paths. He invites us to cast all our cares upon him because he cares deeply for us. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Cry out to him. His ears are open. His arms are open. Cast all your cares upon him. He's ready to receive them. And then he invites us to walk with him, to trust in him, to follow him. He says, anyone who wishes to follow me must pick up his cross. And that cross is the burden that he gives some of us to bear. He says, pick up your cross and come follow me and watch me work. Isn't that good? That the God of the universe, the maker of all that we see, who formed me and has given me life and breath, invites me to come to him, to trust in him, to lean on him, to walk with him. I like what J.A. Packard says. He says, not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our own minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. And while wisdom's not found in the ground, and it's not found in Berkeley or UCLA or wherever those big schools are, God holds it. But he wants to give it to all who ask. And he doesn't hold back when we seek him with all of our heart. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege, Lord, here today of opening and teaching your word. And Lord, I know that you would desire <clears throat> that the keel of our sailboats would be sound, that our houses would be built upon the rock. And we've heard your word today. It's what we do with it that determines those things. And so, Lord, would you help us to be ones who seek you with all of our hearts? Would you help us, Lord, to be ones who pursue you and treasure you and embrace you? And as Job says, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Father, we have a limited time here. <clears throat> there will be a day when we will breathe our last. And there will be a day when we will see you face to face. And Lord, what we eagerly hear, what desire to hear is you say, oh, welcome home. I've been waiting for you and I have prepared a place for you and let me show you the fruit that's come from your life. And we will stand in great awe with the angels and say, you are 
the Almighty God, the great I Am, the Everlasting Father, the Wonderful Counselor, and the Prince of Peace, and my Savior and my Lord. So, Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not have that relationship with you, that today would be the day, Lord, where they embrace you and run after you. If there's any that are here that are heavily burdened today, that they would find that weight lifted from them. For those that are broken, that their lives would be mended today. So, Lord, would you touch us all? Would you help us to serve you well? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week. We'll talk about the sovereignty of God and his work next week.